Alright, so we're reading from Genesis 12, 1 to 9, if you've got a Bible with you. 1,309 in the Pew Bibles. Um, if you found it, or if you look up. Um, let's read. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Thank you. I have a question for you. That is, I'd like you to think about, since the day of your birth, what do you reckon is the most significant world event. I mean, I know the day of your birth was a very significant world event, at least for you and hopefully your family, but since that day, what do you reckon has been the most significant world event to take place? Have a chat to the person next to you and see what you can come up with. Have a bit of chat. Okay, some quick suggestions. Okay, how is this working at all? Very, very low. Okay. Some suggestions from you. What do you think? Most significant world event since the day of your birth. Call out what you came up with. I See, and each day, at the beginning of the week, I thought, I'll ask this question, and the first thing that people say is 9-11. I've been right every day so far. Okay, 9-11, yeah, massive event. What else? Change of the millennium. Okay, yeah. What else? Anything else? Yeah. The iPhone. The iPhone, yes, a world-changing event. I make no comment. Yep. Anything else? GFC. GFC. Significant? Yes. Any other suggestions? Sorry? The Berlin Wall coming down. That's right. No, you're just showing, you're showing just God bless longevity. That's all, right? Uh, I, the reason I ask you that question is because I want to share with you today from this part of God's Word in the book of Genesis a particular event, really a particular conversation, a particular conversation that set a trajectory 
that has resonated through literally thousands of years. One conversation. A world-shaping conversation. A promise that was made in that conversation. In fact, we're looking at Genesis chapter 12, a particular promise that the one true living God made to a guy by the name of Abram, or Abraham you might know him as. This conversation, how I've written here, is history-defining, trajectory-setting, a promise-laden moment. That's my best effort to try to communicate to you the absolute, almost unspeakable enormity of this event. Seriously, this conversation, which took place approximately 1800 BC, has resonated through millennia, thousands of years, and that particular conversation, that particular promise, still sets the trajectory for what is happening this very day on this very campus, in fact, all around the world, and will finally only come to its complete resolution when the Lord Jesus returns and people are gathered around his throne. It is an enormous, history-defining, trajectory-setting, promise-laden event. And the only way I could represent it to you is by sort of putting it on the diagram because I'm a visual person. I just sort of think of this conversation as being the whoosh moment where just from this conversation, just the one true living God makes his promise and it sets the trajectory for everything. Henceforth, it's massive. And we're going to cover it in the next 30 minutes. That's ridiculous, isn't it? That's right, because actually this conversation, because it is so history-defining, so trajectory-setting, it actually is then resonates right throughout the rest of the Bible. So we could spend, without exaggeration, we could spend every public meeting for the rest of the year with no trouble just exploring how this particular conversation resonates through the rest of the Bible. That would be easy-peasy to fill up the time doing that. Well, we're not going to spend all the time doing that. We've got 30 minutes. So I'm barely going to touch the surface and try and just show you how that trajectory goes. But I'm hoping at the end of this sort of 30 minutes that you will walk out today, whether you know the one true living God, whether you know and love the Lord Jesus or not, that you walk out today having a sense of who this God is, that he is the God who makes promises and keeps his promises and a sense of how this conversation with Abram eventually reached its glorious fulfilment in the person of Jesus and what that means today. At least set that trajectory for you. But let's go and dive into Genesis first of all. Genesis chapter 12. Let's uh, see what was this conversation. It was a pretty one-sided conversation. Is that technically a conversation? Maybe not. Just the one true living God speaks to one particular person, this bloke named Abram, and makes a promise to him. Let's have a look here, Genesis chapter 12. Really helpful if you could open it up or maybe share it with the person next to you because we're going to be looking at a couple of chapters here in Genesis and it'll be helpful to follow along. From chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. 
and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him and Lot, his nephew, went with him. few things to highlight here just in this promise that the one true living God makes to this particular guy, Abram. Notice a couple of things. The promise sort of has three parts to it. I will make you into a great nation. That is, from you is going to come a whole nation of people. You're going to have many, many descendants. There's going to be a great people who come from Abram's line. Secondly, I'm going to make your name great. Your name great. What does that mean to have a great name? I mean, Rowan, I think, is a great name, but that's probably, he doesn't change his name to Rowan. Interestingly, he changes it to Abraham. But what does it mean to have a great name? I'm going to, I'm going to make your name great. He then explains how, what it's going to mean for Abraham to have a great name in the next couple of verses. Because what does he then say? He says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The way, what it means for Abram to have a great name is, he is going to be the conduit, the channel of God's blessing to the whole world, to all the nations of the earth. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Wow. That's, that's a great name, right? That all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through him. That's the second part. And the third, third part was actually a bit right at the beginning. Go to the land I will show you. God's going to take Abram from where he was in Haran and place him in the land that the Lord will show him. He doesn't even tell him where it is at the moment. He just says, go to the land I will show you. All right? Like, you can't even buy a plane ticket. Not that he had a plane, but you can't even, like, how, how do you know where you're going? It's not even clear to Abram at this point. I mean, I don't know how the Lord was going to show him the particular land. Maybe it was a bit like those wise men at the birth of Jesus who just followed a star. I mean, they didn't know where the star was going to land, right? They just sort of or, or sort of stopped. So they just followed it. Abram is just told to go to the land, I will show you, okay? So you see, for Abram, though, the significance of this, this was a, a, a new, fresh start, a new start for Abram. Because notice all of those things we highlighted, the land, the great uh, people, and a, and a new name, a great name. Those three things represent a new start for Abram. Because if you look there in the first verse, it says, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Because you bore the name of your father, right? Leave all those things. Leave your land, leave your people, and leave your name. And instead, go to the land I will show you, I will turn you into a great people, and I will give you a great name. It's a massive new start for Abram. Do you reckon it was risky for him? Do you reckon he would have felt risk at that point to leave the place where he lived, to leave his family, to leave his inheritance from his father, his father's name? Yeah, it would have been risky. But what does Abram do? Verse 4, so Abram left as the Lord had told him. He shows real faith, real trust here, doesn't he? As he trusts God's promise and leaves these things behind. So you notice here, even already, yes, it's a new start for Abram. He's showing himself to be a man who trusts God's promise. Even without, I guess, the certainty of knowing what it's going to mean for him. 
So we see a fresh start for Abram. So that's, I guess, inspiring at one level. You think, oh, that's great. I mean, he's a guy who trusts the one true living God's word of promise. That's a good thing. Yeah, indeed. However, if you want to get the significance of this, you have to remember that Genesis is Genesis chapter 12 comes after Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We're actually engaged in a bit of an ongoing account here of God's dealings with the world. And there's 11 chapters before it. So if you really want to understand the significance of Genesis chapter 12, you've got to whoosh backwards, first of all, to where the story started. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you might remember the story. Genesis chapter 1, God creates all things and says, he looks at everything and says, very good. Everything he makes is very good. And then in Genesis chapter 2, he takes Adam and places Adam and Eve alongside him into the garden. What's the significance of that? He takes one particular person or a couple and places them as his people into his place, his land. And he blesses them with everything there in the garden. Sounding a little bit like what he says in chapter 12. Yeah, it's meant to. Because what happens with Abram has this background. God has done this before. He takes, takes people to be his own, places them in his place and promises to bless them. But what happens next in the story through Genesis? Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's all looking great at the end of Genesis 2, but Genesis 3 through chapters 11 are actually the story, the account of the spread and the effect of sin. Sin is one of those words that you hear Christians bandy about a little bit and it's not always entirely clear what they mean. Is, is sin just doing something wrong or a sin, an attitude, or what, what is sin? I guess the way I've been trying to talk about it over the last number of weeks is like this. I think sin, when you read the book of Genesis, it's, it's made clear to us, particularly in Genesis chapter 3, that sin is rejecting God's word and rejecting his way. Because when he gives his, his word, he tells us how we should live best in his world. But when you reject his word and you reject his way, you're actually saying to God, the one true living God, I don't want to, you to be my God. You might be telling me your word and telling me your way, but when I reject your word and your way, I'm saying, you're not my God. That's the heart of sin. A rejection of the one true living God as your God. And what you see uh, as from Genesis chapter 3 through to chapter 11 is that sin, this heart of rebellion against God, his word and his ways, this spreads throughout all, right through all, in every human heart and you see the effect of that lived out. We saw it sort of come to a bit of a climax in Genesis chapter 11 last week with the Tower of Babel where the people say, we're going to make a name for ourselves and the Lord has to come down in judgment to stop them committing that sin. But interesting, here you get to chapter 12. It's not Abram saying, I'm going to make a great name. No, now the Lord comes and says, I'm going to make you into a great name. The Lord chooses to do it here. And I guess you've seen through these chapters, while sin has been spreading, what we've been seeing God doing is God has continued to pursue his good purposes for his creation and his creatures right throughout this story. How is he? It's not like, you know, he created the world Human beings said, get stuffed, God. We're going to wreck it all ourselves. And God didn't just go, oh, well, and wipe his hands and walk away. The one true living God, 
the true creator who loves the world that he's made, he will not let his good intentions for this world fall to the ground. He is determined out of love to pursue his good intentions for his creatures and his creation. And he will see them, his good intentions, he will see his good purposes fulfilled, realised. And we've seen that throughout these chapters. Despite human sin, God comes amongst amongst his creatures and he seeks to eradicate sin by judging it, condemning it, and by seeking to bring blessing to his creatures. Now, in light of that sort of story, that, that sort of account that we've been given in these chapters, when you then come to chapter 12 and re-read what God is doing here, you start to see, oh, this is not just a new start for Abram to leave his family and his land. No, this is actually the new phase of God's pursuit, continuing pursuit of his good purposes for his creation. He's just doing what he's already been doing. And he's saying, actually, my, my continued heart is to bless all the nations, all the people that I've created. And I'm going to take you, Abram, and I'm going to turn you into a great nation and give you a great name and you will be the channel through which I will bless all the nations of the world and fulfill my good creation purposes. That's why this conversation has echoed through millennia. That's why from this conversation in 1800 BC still echoes through to today because when God said, I am going to fulfill my good intentions for my creation by making you the conduit, the channel of my blessing to all people, that is still being pursued even now. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Here is the moment where God decides to introduce the new phase of his pursuit of his good purposes for his plans for his creation. Well, what happens next after he makes this promise? I guess you could divide up what happens next into a couple of different sections. There's sort of the short term. What happens just in the next 25 years or so after the one true living God makes this promise? That's sort of covered in the next couple of chapters of Genesis. That's the short term. And we're going to look at that in a moment. Then there's the longer term, how these promises play out in the longer term over the next thousand years or so after the Lord makes his promise. And then there's what I'm calling the full term, when the Lord brings, and the the pregnancy analogy is not inappropriate, when God brings these promises that are conceived to completion, to birth, in the person of Jesus Christ. So we're going to briefly look at some of those sort of horizons. Okay. So first of all, the short term. What happens next in the short term? This is where you're looking at Genesis chapters 12 through 17. And as you look over these chapters, and it's worth sitting down and reading if you haven't read it recently, uh, they're great stories, great accounts, and they're sort of interesting as you just read them along. And I'm going to try to make some sense of those episodes for you in the light of this promise that God's made in chapter 12. How do you pull those those narratives together? This is how I see it working. Over these chapters, I think what God is doing is God is demonstrating that he will keep his promise. He's made the promise in the beginning of chapter 12. Now he demonstrates to Abram that he will keep that promise. 
And he demonstrates it in a couple of ways. He demonstrates it by clarifying the promise, which we'll look at. He demonstrates it by confirming the promise, particularly through the covenant that we'll look at. And he does it by overcoming threats to the promise. And under those sort of three headings, you can fit most of the different episodes that happen in these chapters. But overall, what God is doing is he's demonstrating that he will fulfill his promise. We'll keep it. So let's dive into this a little bit. What about clarifying the promise? Well, you'll notice I said before, when the Lord said to Abram, leave your father's land and your father's household and and go to the land I'll show you, it's not made clear to Abram immediately about where he's meant to go. Somehow the Lord leads him, and if you've got your Bible there, you can see it. By the time you get down to chapter 12, verse 6, we read, Abram travelled through the land of Canaan as far as the site of the great tree at Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, so he's walking through someone else's land, the Canaanites are living everywhere, and then, verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Ah, okay, so we've sort of arrived. Abram's looking around, the land is full of Canaanites. You're going to give this land to my offspring. Interesting, okay, there you go. So suddenly he knows where he's meant to land, right? Uh, No pun intended. And he has to confirm it later on. If you get into chapter 13, which we'll talk about an episode with Lot, but you can see when you get to verse 14 of chapter 13, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. It's like he's meant to be doing a victory lap. You know, if you win the 400 metres at the Olympic Games, it's sort of fine for you to sort of grab a flag and run around, do another lap, like, because you own this place, right? You, you, you won here. This is your track. So you do a victory lap. And now the Lord says to Abram, go. It's full of Canaanites, but, but you know, walk the length and breadth of the land. It's yours, buddy. So he sort of does a victory lap of the land. He can... He can go wherever he likes. So the Lord makes clear, he clarifies the promise by saying, it's this land. This is the land. He's clarifying the promise. But the other big problem, potentially, for Abram is the fact that his wife, Sarah, wasn't able to have kids. Now, we know this, having read through Genesis, before we even get to chapter 12. When Abram is first introduced in chapter 11, in verse 31, we're told that Sarai his wife was barren. In fact, verse 30, Sarai was barren. She had no children. So when the Lord makes this promise to Abram that I'm going to turn you into a great nation, well, how are you going to do that? I mean, Abram's 75, his wife's 65. She's never been able to have kids. I'm going to turn you into a great nation. I mean, how's God going to do that? Well, the Lord has to clarify how that's going to happen. So if you've got your Bible there, you can see, if you jump ahead to uh, chapter 15, verses 3 to 4, you can see this plays on Abram's mind. Chapter 15, verse 3, Abram said to the Lord, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir, which was the, the custom of the time. If you didn't have any kids, maybe it was a servant in your household who you would make your heir. He says, I, I got, I've, got no, I've got no line. 
no descendants. But then the word of the Lord came to him, verse 4, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. The Lord is clarifying the promise. No, no, it's going to be someone from your, from your own body. Okay, cool. But then, as we'll see a bit later in chapter 16, uh, Abram and Sarah sort of, sort of go it alone a bit at that stake, that way, and sort of go, oh, okay, so it's going to be someone from Abram's body. They come up with a clever, if bit dodgy, do-it-yourself plan for how can we get an heir out of Abram if Sarah can't have kids. Sarah has a great idea. Hey, why don't you sleep with my servant girl, Hagar, and have a kid with her, and that'll give you an heir from your own body. Oh, brilliant plan, but it's not the Lord's plan. So the Lord has to clarify exactly what sort of heir we're talking about. If you jump to chapter 17, verse 15, God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down and laughed said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Because by this time Abraham's a hundred. Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael, who was the name of the son he'd had by Hagar, the servant girl, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. He's still pursuing his own do-it-yourself plan, right? Then God said, yes, I will. That is, I will bless Ishmael, which he does, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. The Lord is clarifying the promise. That's one of the things that goes on in these chapters. Which land, which heir? It's going to be from Abraham and Sarah and his name's going to be Isaac. We'll look at that next week. Second thing that happens in these chapters, the Lord confirms his promise. So the Lord makes his promise in chapter 12, but one of the important things that happens over the course of these chapters is the Lord takes that promise and he confirms it makes it even more certain, if you need that, when the Lord makes a promise, it's a promise, but he makes it even more certain by establishing it as a covenant. What's a covenant? Well, a covenant is just a binding agreement that two parties enter into. So, if you like, marriage is a covenant. A Christian understanding of marriage is it's a binding agreement that two people voluntarily make, man and a woman, to each other for life till death parts us. But you both enter into it willingly. It's, If you like, it's negotiated. When my grandmother agreed to marry my grandfather, she negotiated with him. She said, I will marry you, I will be your wife, provided you give me three things. A piano, an enamel bath, this was the 1920s, an enamel bath, because that's better than bathing in tin, and a traymobile, which was a two-level trolley that you pushed in, like women of culture would push in the afternoon tea on the traymobile, and then you would sit around and have a... She said, you give me those three things, I'll marry you. And so he did, right? But it was a negotiated... The point is, it was a negotiated covenant, right? Both parties. When the one true living God establishes a covenant, it's different to that. When the one true living God establishes a covenant, it's unilaterally applied. 
It's unilaterally imposed. You don't get to negotiate the terms. When the one true living God says, I establish my covenant with you, boom, it's on. Okay, it's happening, right? And you can lump it or you can like it, but it's happening. And the Lord says here to Abram, I am establishing my covenant with you. That's what chapter 15 is about, where the Lord establishes his covenant. And you can read through the details there. When you get to the end of chapter 15, they have an interesting sort of covenant establishment type ceremony, which is a bit strange and it's hard for us at such historical distance to understand all the details. There's animals that are sort of cut in half and Abram falls into a sleep and there's a burning pot that sort of floats through the middle of it. It's all a bit, seems a bit strange to us. It's partly because it's just, this is a long time ago. We don't really understand all the resonances here in this account. But it's very clear when you get to the end of the account, verse 18 of chapter 15, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates. So the Lord takes his promise and makes it the basis for a covenant. which That's the Lord binding himself to this promise. Irrespective, actually, of what Abram does. And as you go on into chapter 17, this covenant is then confirmed itself when the Lord gives a sign. He gives a sign to Abram and his descendants. It's a sign that they are members of this covenant, a sign that they are the recipients of God's covenant promise. What's the particular sign? It would sort of be nice if that sign was like a little laminated card that you keep in your wallet. That would be nice. When I joined the EU a long, long time ago as a student, when you signed up and became a member of the EU, you actually got a little card. Nice, saying, yeah, I've got, and you signed your declaration that you trust Jesus, your Lord and Saviour. And you had it on a little card and you kept it in your wallet. And it was all... Anyway, the sign that Abram is given from the Lord is circumcision. Um, at one level, not such a visible sign as a card. At another level, when you're circumcised, it's a fairly visible act. Uh, and this is the sign. All the men in Abram's line were to be circumcised from, from that moment on as a sign that they are the members of this covenant promise, the recipients of God's covenant promise of blessing. So that's one of the things that happens in this chapter. The, the promises are clarified, the promises are confirmed, and finally, the other things that happen in these chapters is that God has to show that he can overcome the threats, the potential threats to the promise, and I've, there's four threats that come up, I guess, in the course of these chapters, and three of them are Abram's own doing. He himself introduces some potential threats to the promise that the Lord has to overcome. So in chapter 12, for instance, if you've got that there, chapter 12, verse 10, we read there, now this is just after the Lord has made the promise to Abram. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live for a while because the famine was severe. So the Lord just made a promise that I'm going to give you this land and then as soon as there's a famine, even a severe famine, Abram gets up and leaves. So I'm not sure that's quite sort of a positive response. But then what happens next I think is certainly probably not smart. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. All good husbands would say that, right? Yeah, but, but he means it. I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. 
then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace, that is, taken into his harem, taken as one of his wives. Good work, Abram. (laughs) The Lord has made a promise to you to turn you into a great nation. And you've traded off your wife to preserve your life. Oh, no, but he got, he got good things out of it. Good, inverted commas. Verse 15. Oh, no, sorry, down to verse 16. Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys, men, servants, maidens, and camels. He traded away his wife and got camels. What a great plan. How is the Lord going to fulfill his promise to turn Abram into a great nation and secure him in the land when Abram's left the land and traded his wife for a camel? What the Lord has to do is work in his sovereignty to preserve his promise. And what does he do? Well, he makes it clear to Pharaoh that something's amiss. Pharaoh works out it's because Sarai is actually Abraham's wife, not his sister calls Abraham and says, what the heck are you doing? Get out of here. Take Sarah with you and the camels. (laughs) So Abraham leaves actually with more than he came. He actually leaves with all the camels and the donkeys and everything else and his wife. So the Lord works sovereignty in it to preserve the potential of this promise. And you see this a couple of times. You get to chapter 13, Abraham and his nephew Lot, now with large amounts of flocks and herds, large families, they're back in the land and they're still hanging together and it's just the land can't sustain them all. So Abram, in what seems to me to be maybe overly generous, I'm not sure, that's why I've got a question mark there, is Abram being overly generous at this point to Lot when he says to Lot, you basically can choose any part of the land to live in. You pick. I mean, the one true living God, did, did, they make, did he make the promise of this land to Lot? No, he made it to Abram and Abram's descendants. So why is Abram handing away the inheritance? I just wonder if Abram's being a bit overly generous at this point. But the Lord works sovereignly in it and when Lot looks and he looks around, he he chooses, as you would, he chooses the best part of the land for himself. But it happens that the, the part of the land that appears best to him under God's sovereignty is the region around Sodom and Gomorrah which is sort of outside the boundaries of the strict of the land. So he chooses outside and then guess what? Under God's sovereignty, Abram's left with the land of Canaan. So the Lord works sovereignly to overcome the potential threat. You can see then in chapter 14, as you read through, there's other powerful people there present in the land. It's a story about five kings who war against four kings, all sort of present in the local area. The threat that poses is if this land is going to be given to Abram and his descendants, What hope do they have in the light of all these powerful enemies? But what's clear in the story is actually the Lord will bless Abram and he uses Abram's small, relatively small household to overcome some of these very powerful armies. There's an indication there that God will keep his promise even though the land be full of the Canaanites, eventually God will fulfil his promise to Abraham. He's demonstrating he can overcome the threat. And finally we have the bit I mentioned before in chapter 16 where we have Sarah, Sarah and Abram's um, 
dodgy do-it-yourself solution to getting an heir from Abram's own body, which is sleep with Hagar and behold, Ishmael. How does the Lord overcome this? He has to actually both protect Ishmael's life because it all goes bad between Hagar and Sarah, and as you might expect. Anyway, the Lord has to intervene, demonstrate that actually he has care for Hagar and for Ishmael, but also make clear to Abram that that's not actually the plan. The plan is with your wife, buddy. So that's how. So what you see through these chapters is God demonstrating he will keep his promise. Demonstrated by clarifying the promises, confirming the promises and overcoming the threats to the promise. That's the short term. Okay? feel like you got a little bit, that's just a bit of an introduction to these chapters of Genesis so that you can go away and go, I can read this with this some understanding. I hope you do that. But as I said, this promise to Abram has massive resonances going forward. And so whatever time I've got left, a whole six minutes, I need to trace that out just a tiny bit for you, right? In the longer term, God does keep his promise. Oh, I forgot about this. This is really important. Yeah. The, um, this is really important because how does Abram respond to all that God is doing through these chapters? And the consistent message you get right throughout these chapters, despite Abram's failings at different times, is that Abram responds in trust. <coughs> he has a faith response. He entrusts himself to God's promise. We saw it in chapter 12, verse 4, when God said, leave your father's household and that land and come to the land I'll show you. Abram just did as the Lord said. And it's confirmed on the way through. And in particular, one particular verse that is probably important to sort of capture Abram's response is chapter 15, verse 6, where when the Lord is establishing his covenant with Abram, we're then told, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The Lord credited Abram's faith response as righteousness. He said, you've responded with trust in me, in my promise. I regard you as righteous. You have right standing with me because you've responded in trust. Now that's really helpful for us because the one true living God, he reveals himself as the God who does make promises. Has it ever occurred to you, why does God do that? Why does God make promises? Because God can do whatever he likes. He could decide, I'm going to turn Abram into a great nation and never tell Abram, just do it anyway. Why does he bother to tell Abram? Why is he a God who articulates a promise about his plan? It's so that Abram will respond with trust. It's so that Abram will be a person of faith in that promise. That's how you respond to the one true living God who makes promises. You respond with trust, faith. Um, I've only ever written two songs in my life. I don't know how many you've written, but I've only ever written two. One was so bad that fortunately I've forgotten it. I can't even remember what it was. I know I wrote it, and now I've forgotten what it was. I do remember the other song I wrote. I wrote it for a beach mission, like where we're sort of trying to teach young kids. I think I was teaching sort of five to seven-year-olds about who one true living God is in Jesus Christ. And the particular point we were trying to make in this particular lesson was you can trust God. You can trust God. So I wrote a song. I'm not going to sing it for you. 
It was a very, very simple song. It had, it was a classic D, A and G song. That they're chords, not, I'm not saying it was daggy. I mean, it was daggy, but it was a D, A, G song. Um, and, but the words went like this. If you want to know who to trust, God keeps his promises. Jesus came just like God had said. Other friends will let you down, but God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. You can put your trust in him. That was the song. Now, it has all sorts of musical problems with it, but theologically, I reckon it's pretty good. It's not too bad. I think that's the response we make to the God who reveals himself as the God who makes loving promises to us. We respond in faith, which is what we see Abraham doing here. It's what we're called to do, responding to the promises he's made for us in Christ. But let's zoom forward to that. First of all, you could trace it out through the nation of Israel. Yes, they do turn into a great nation. They're at Mount Sinai on the left. Yes, they do enter the promised land of Canaan as they cross the Jordan under Joshua's leadership. Yes, the Lord does turn that nation of Israel into a blessing for other nations. Pictured there for, say, the Queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon, King Solomon of Israel in all his glory and splendour. And yes, there was blessing shared to other nations. You can trace in the longer term how those promises came true. However, the big problem for the nation of Israel was they didn't respond to God with trust, not as a nation. And because they didn't respond to God with trust, they did not have righteousness credited to them. They were not regarded as righteous by God because they would not responded in faith. And it wasn't then until the Lord Jesus comes that you actually see how those promises to Abraham are finally fulfilled in all their glory. And there's a couple of key passages which I don't have lots of time to look at today, but are worth you going away and reflecting on in the light of what we've talked about. Galatians chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, two key passages where the Apostle Paul pulls apart these chapters from Genesis we've been looking at and looks at both the promises God makes and Abraham's faith response and traces it through to work out how are those fulfilled in Jesus. For example, how does the promise to Abraham's descendants trace out when you get to Jesus? Well, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes clear that the descendant who receives all the promises of Abraham, the descendant, is actually Jesus. Jesus is the one who receives all the fulfilment of those promises. But because you or I, by trusting in Jesus, are joined with Jesus, anyone who puts their trust in Jesus becomes an heir of those promises, an inheritor of those promises. Jesus is the focus, but by faith you too receive those promises. What is the nature of that blessing that comes to all of us? Well, the nature of the blessing that comes to all of us is righteousness. Just as Abraham because he trusted God, was credited as righteous, that's exactly what now happens to us. All nations will be blessed through you. And then Paul says, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, because we are too now justified, regarded as righteous by God. 
That is, all of our sin is dealt with through Jesus on the cross. Through his death and his resurrection, our lack of righteousness is dealt with. So that promise that actually all the nations will be blessed turns out to be a promise about righteousness, right standing with God, which comes to fruition through Jesus Christ. Now, there's more you could say there, but I guess in one way, if you like last week, you could just jump all the way forward to the very end of the Bible. Because there, as we talked about last week, gathered around the throne of Jesus are all these people from all the nations of the world. And what are they wearing? They're wearing white robes. And there's this moment in the vision where John's asked, do you know who these are with white robes? He says, I've got no idea, sir, you know. And then he's told, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. They have righteousness. They're justified before God because they, they have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's what the promise to Abraham ultimately looks like your robe washed white in the blood of Jesus. So what does that mean for us as we leave today? It means three things. Faith, trust in the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus. Praise, praise him that even though you're not a physical descendant of Abraham, you've been included in his promises. And finally, proclaiming Jesus, remembering that the great end is there might be disciples from all nations gathered around his throne. Thanks very much. Thanks, Rowan. Let's respond to um, his message in prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, that you are a God who is sovereign um, from the very beginning. And we thank you that um, even through the promises you have um, uh, given to Abraham, that you have ultimately fulfilled them in the uh, Lord and Saviour of Jesus. Um, So, Lord, we ask that you may help us um, to respond in faith um, and trust Um, as well to continue to um, give thanks um, for all the blessings which you have given us in Christ. Um, And from that, help us to proclaim um, the truth um, and a wonderful message of salvation um, in Jesus Christ. Um, So we pray that you'll continue to um, sustain us and um, hold us as we um, finish the semester. Uh, I pray that, yeah, you'll um, continue to bless us um, for the rest of this week. And we pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen.